All right, welcome back to our course. This course is called Talmudic Ethics, and today we speak about free speech. Oh wait, this class has been censored. Joking, <laughs> joking, joking, joking. All right, <laughs> today's, oh you guys are great. Um, uh, don't forget to tip the waiters and waitresses. Joking. So here we go. Um, today's class is all about free speech. Free speech and the limits of free speech or what perhaps ought to be the limits of free speech, that is today's conversation. So freedom of speech, I would say, is one of the great uh, marks of an open and democratic society. Free speech is enshrined in the very first amendment of the Bill of Rights, and I quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press. Freedom of speech, freedom of the press is one of the basic foundational values of our country. And it's one, I think we would agree, that it's one of the foundational um, elements of a free society. The ability for people to speak their minds freely, to be able to, uh, uh, for the press to publish freely, this is one of the hallmarks of freedom. At the same time, we know that um, free speech can sometimes impinge on the rights or the respect of another individual, right? One person's free speech is another person's hate speech, right? How do we manage free speech versus hate speech? This is something that social media networks, right, have been platforms, have been dealing with, right? Twitter. Or is it X? I don't know what it's called nowadays, but Twitter, X, right? Do we censor? Do we throw people off the platform, right? That are saying things that perhaps are hateful and, 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 and destruct and damaging or dangerous, et cetera? Or do we keep this platform a place of free speech? Say whatever you wish. Should there be parameters around free speech? Should people gather in front of the synagogue of my colleague in Cobb County on Lower Roswell Road with swastikas, as they did a few weeks ago, right? Is, should that be protected under the guise, hi Faye, should that be protected under the category of free speech? Which, by the way, it was. Also, interestingly enough, because I've, I've been to that synagogue many, many times, it's right next to a police station. <laughs> Literally right next to the police station, which was an interesting place for, for this uh, to take place. I guess they were keeping an eye and make sure everything was, was kosher as it, as it were. Certainly something very offensive to the Jewish community, very hurtful for the Jewish, to, uh, to the Jewish community, and at the same time protected under free speech. The question we're going to deal with today is how free is free speech? And at what cost? And should there be, are there, should there be limitations? Famously, you can't cry fire in a crowded theater. I believe that's, that's not legal. What about free speech? Okay, so there is, there are limitations even within our rules on free speech. Today we're going to look at a Jewish perspective on speech and explore what uh, Jewish wisdom has to say about the notion of free speech. We're going to begin with two case studies. Um, these case studies present real cases that came before Israeli courts. Israeli, Israeli courts um, testing the limits of free speech and artistic expression and freedom of the press. You'll see what I mean in a second. Let's start with case study one. It's right there on page 
The page number there is 68. Case study one, I will read this. It's a bit of a lengthy case, but it's worth it. Okay, let's, uh, let's jump right in. Um, in 1994, in 1994, Mati Lerner, an Israeli movie producer, produced a television show called Kastner. The show was based on the famous story of Dr. Rudolf Kastner, a Zionist leader in Nazi-occupied Hungary in, 1940, uh, um, in 1944, who was later charged before an Israeli court for the crime of collaborating with the Nazis. By the way, before we continue, anybody familiar with the story of Rudolf Kastner? A really, really um, complicated story, as we'll see. Very complex. He, the short of it is, he saved lives, but allegedly, he also aided and abetted in the extermination, in the killing, the murder of many more. Let's read. The Nazis had learned from the experience of the Warsaw Ghetto's uprising that it was important to secure the help of Jewish leadership in order to hide the true purpose of the train journey to Auschwitz, to make sure there would be no organized resistance. Again, the, the Nazis, this is my commentary, right? The Nazis um, wanted to make sure that there wouldn't be an uprising, so they wanted the Jewish leadership to kind of Say, oh no, this is, this is not a death train. This is not a death camp. This is just, you know, a vacation. Um, according to the evidence presented to the Israeli courts, Eichmann struck a deal with Kastner, who was Jewish, in which Eichmann agreed to allow the rescue of some Jews from Hungary and in return Kastner ensured that the 800,000 Jews of Hungary would be calm and cooperative while the Nazis deported them to Auschwitz. Kastner, who was trusted by the Jews, convinced them that they were being taken to a peaceful town where they would stay in farms until the war was over. In return, Kastner handpicked 600 Jews, most of whom were friends and relatives, to be transported to safety. Now this is what he was accused of in Israeli court of doing. I believe, if I'm not mistaken, um, if I'm not mistaken, he was assassinated while this trial was going on. Good. He was assassinated. <laughs> right? He was assassinated. And, and it's a, it's a very, it's a, this is a very complicated case. But it, this, is, we're still, this is still the background. Let's continue. Kastner was also accused of bringing about the execution of Hannah Senesh by the Nazis, as well as delivering two agents of the Jewish agency, Palki and Goldstein, to the Nazis. Who was Chana Senesh? Let's go back, let's, let's continue. Chana Senesh was one of three brave members of the Jewish agency in Palestine who parachuted into Hungary during its Nazi occupation to warn the Jews of Hungary about the impending danger and to help them attempt to rescue. So again, these people were doing the opposite of what the Nazis wanted. Basically, they, wanted, they were going to parachute behind the lines into um, Europe and tell everybody what's happening. Because on the ground, no one had access to information. They didn't know about these extermination camps. The, the people outside knew more than people inside. Okay, let's continue. Chana Senesh was caught very soon after she landed. She, was, she literally parachuted into Hungary and she was captured. She was tortured in order to extract information from her about the other two members of the, of the Jewish agency who were hiding at that time. She bravely endured the horrible torture without disclosing, disclosing any information about her colleagues. She was executed shortly after. Hannah Senesh became a national heroine in Israel. She was seen as a symbol of Jewish sacrifice and courage. However, the show, remember, 1994, this guy's producing a show called Kastner. However, the show, which is written in honor of the 50th anniversary of Senesh's death, contained a line in which Kastner told Hannah Senesh's mother in court during her testimony against him that it was Senesh 
who broke under torture and delivered the information about Palgi's and Goldstein's whereabouts to the Nazis. In fact, Castor never said any such thing. So this movie, this TV producer sensationalizes the story and has Kastner on, at the trial accusing Hannah Senesh, who died, who was tortured to death, of divulging the information about her two colleagues to the Nazis and that got them all killed. Now Senesh is that, and, and the line is in there purely for, what would we call it? Sensationalistic artistic purposes. Never happened, it's not true but it was in there. Senesh's family and friends sued to prevent its airing because they saw this false line as slanderous and offensive to the honor of Hannah Senesh. Many national organizations in Israel obviously agreed. The question around which this case revolved is whether one should restrict artistic freedom in light of the public dishonor to an individual. Mati Lerner, the producer, did not pretend to make a factual statement about who betrayed the two Israeli agents. He inserted the line purely for its dramatic effect. Did he have the right to artistic expression despite the shadow it cast over the memory of Chana Senesh? If you were the Israeli court, judges, justices, what would you say? All right, who says, we're gonna take a quick poll here, all right? This is a, uh, a, a, um, an unofficial um, uh, poll. All right, do you believe that Mati Lerner, the, the TV producer, should be permitted to throw in a line for dramatic purposes, artistic purposes, um, that casts someone who's deceased in a negative light? Do you think that he has the right, yes? Is this considered to be a documentary? No. It's based on a true story. Even though it's not a documentary, could somebody have sued the liable? Right, that's what they're doing. Well, I mean, they're essentially trying to block its airing in court, trying to have the court block its, its release. That's the question. So, uh, so hold on. So anyone say yes? It could be inserted. Who says no, it should not be inserted? Yeah? Legally, what do you think legally? Forget about morally and ethically. Legally, do you think that the producer has the right to put that line in? Yeah. Legally, yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes, we have some more yeses. Now that I clarify that from a legal perspective. Okay, hold, hold that, hold your thoughts about that for a second. Case study number two. Let's get to a, uh, another case that came before the Israeli courts. Okay, case study two, page 70 in the, in the booklets. In 1988, the Israeli newspaper Yidiot Acharonot published a story about a murder that had occurred in 1956, which would have been 32 years prior. It published the name and pictures of the perpetrator of the crime, who was 61 years old at the time of the article's publication. The former criminal had since been rehabilitated, was married, and ran a successful business. The article exposed his evil past to his neighbors and customers, although there did not appear to be any danger of his acting violently again. He sued the newspaper, claiming that the public exposure of his past life forced him to sell his business and move from the neighborhood and brought devastating damage to his reputation in the community. Think about this before I get to the question. In 1988, it's not like you can Google your, um, your contractor. I don't know if he was a contractor. I don't know what he did. But you can't just put somebody's name in a search engine and find out that he was convicted of a crime 32 years prior, which means that this fellow had sat in prison. He had, it seems like, at least from the way the case study is written, it seems like he had turned over a new leaf, you know, family, 
job, different community, living his life, and that sort of thing. And now the newspaper publishes. Now, why did they publish it? I don't know. We don't have that information. But it doesn't seem like it was due to any immediate threat to the, to the community. They publish a story about the murder that happened 32 years prior. The question that's, that's, uh, that, that's, that's, that's in front of the court now, this guy sues the newspaper, sues Yudiot Akronot, and he's saying that it's, uh, it, 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 it brought devastating harm upon him, and, and, the, and the newspaper should not have done that. What do you think? Do you think that the newspaper was in its, within its legal rights to publish that story that happened 32 years prior? Legal rights. No? Yes? Yes. Public record? Yes, 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 yes. No. Let's get the no. Why no? Because they had no reason for, for a newspaper, which normally publishes current news, um, to go back and hop on a case that was finished. Okay. Okay. So you're saying, what was the utility? What was the newsworthiness of an old story? How is it newsworthy? And if it's not, then it's just, uh, it's just scandalous. Okay, those that said yes, let me get a representative of why you said yes. Can't do the crime, don't do the time. And I don't consider um, just going, he was murdered, we're talking. Right, yeah, it's murder. And that's part of your run? It's gonna fo- you're saying it's going to follow you around. Doesn't matter that, uh, you, that you did the time already. It, bottom line is expect that it's going to come up, and that's it. You can't hide from it, yeah. Right. Well, right. Sure. When I was a kid, checking out in the newspaper, uh, checking out in the supermarket, I used to glance over at the newspaper, at the, the, at the, you know, they have over there those things, and the National Enquirer would always have like, I don't know, Michael Jackson just gave birth to a baby with two-headed alien. That that was always the, you know, the. That what maybe it was the globe. I don't know. I think they were neck and neck with those with those types of uh, of articles. Um, but what do I know? I know. But yeah, National Choir. I think people took with massive grains of salt, all the salt. Um, but here you have Idiot Akronot is a legitimate newspaper. It's like a, it's an actual. I mean, it's one of the big newspapers in Israel, and they're posting now. Why, why, I mean, they're publishing. Why did they publish? I don't know. I mean, you know, who knows why they published it? Maybe it was, you know, Turn Back Time Tuesday, and it's like this, this, this date in history 32 years ago. Who knows? Or maybe they were doing a profile or a series on, you know, Israeli high-profile murders in the past or something. I, I, this is speculation. I think sometimes what's good about a case study is when you don't have all the information, and then you can kind of just talk about different ideas, different scenarios, and kind of tease it out. So I think it's an interesting case. The difference... I'll ask you guys a question. What, what difference do you see between case study one and two? In both cases, somebody is suing because they don't like what's, uh, what's being put out there. What's the difference in between one and two? Um, in one, you have a producer taking artistic license fact. Right. And in case study two? In number two, you have fact and newspaper publishing Right. So the difference, good, very well said. The difference between case study one and two is that in case study one, the disparaging information was false. Never happened. It was a lie. In case study two, it was actually true, but it was also hurtful and harmful. So that's, that's, where, that's a distinction. 
And that's, uh, and, 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 but it's, there's still a question. In case study one, the family is trying to block this, um, this, this, the release of this TV show series because it disparages the memory of their family member, Hannah Senesh. In case study two, there's a lawsuit against the newspaper for publishing a true story that now basically disrupts this guy's life. It, it's blowing up his life. Here he's done his time. He's been rehabilitated, alleged, I mean, we don't know, right? But if he's been rehabilitated, starting a new life, and now to just dredge up the past and, and totally you know, flip his life upside down, he's feeling that that was unnecessary and, um, and, and, and not, not okay. Okay, we're not going to get right now into the way the, the Israeli courts um, looked into this. What I want to focus on right now is a Jewish way of looking at the question of free speech, because really both cases... Both cases are revolving around this issue of free speech. In case study one, free speech includes freedom uh, to create art. By the way, in most TV shows and movies that are based on real uh, facts, there's always a disclaimer, right? What is the disclaimer? Not everything here is factual, right? We're taking artistic license, something like that. In lots of movies and TV shows, you'll have another disclaimer that says, none of the characters are based on real people. In other words, do not sue us. Of course they're based on real people. Are you making up someone out of nowhere? Everything's based on real people. The writers are basing it based on their experience. 100% it's based on... If so, whenever someone gives a disclaimer, you know that's exactly what they're trying... Whatever they're saying not to... Like someone starts off a sentence, I don't, I don't mean to be offensive, but you're about to be offensive. 100% and that is the intention. So, so when, when they're like, oh, it's not based on a true story or not based on real people, absolutely. But, it, but maybe legally that's been done to kind of uh, preclude the lawsuit or lawsuits, right? Can't sue me if, I, if I've said that we've taken artistic license in this story. So maybe that's the angle on it. But that, that's the question is about freedom of the arts, freedom of the press, free speech versus perhaps other considerations. So I want to get into the core fundamental distinction between U.S. law and Jewish law and I, and I have to add this one very important um, uh, note, and that is the Israeli courts do not operate based on Jewish law. Now, let me just be very clear here. The, the, the justices in the Israeli courts are usually mostly Jewish, but that, and, they're, and they're adjudicating the law that doesn't make it Jewish law. What's the difference? When I say Jewish law, what I mean is, like, you know, biblical, Talmudic law, like old school, not old school, but like, you know, traditional Jewish law based on Torah values. The Israeli courts are more based on Western systems of law, which is based on more secular systems of law. I mean, ultimately, you can say that it's inspired by biblical, judicial, and Talmudic values, sure, but it's, it's not, we wouldn't call that Jewish law, even if it is Jews who are adjudicating those laws in Israel. This is, by the way, we're not going to get into the, is the, the Supreme Court drama right now in Israel. That's for another class. At some point, we'll get into that. Maybe. Don't, don't, don't hold me to that. But I just want to give that caveat because the Israeli courts would rule more like U.S. courts on these questions. And today, I want to contrast those, this, that, all of that with Jewish law, i.e. Talmudic law. After all, this course is called Talmudic Ethics. As we've said throughout the previous three sessions of this series, the fundamental distinction between secular law, U.S. law, Israeli law, and Jewish law is the question of rights 
versus responsibilities, or rights versus obligations. That's the core distinction. In the US, we speak in terms of rights. The right of free speech, the right to practice religion, the right, 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 it's all about rights. Rights, 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 Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. Brady Bunch reference. Okay, so it's all about rights. In the Jewish system, Jewish law is based on obligations. I said this before, and I'm just gonna repeat myself, in the Ten Commandments, it doesn't say as a parent, you have the right, welcome, welcome. It doesn't say you have the right to be honored as a parent. It says to the child, you must honor your parents. It doesn't say that you have the right, right? You have the right to, um, to, to, to maintain your property and to hold on to your property. It says, no, you cannot steal from someone else's property or someone else's property. So it's not about rights, it's about responsibilities. Two different systems, two different ways of looking at the world. In the US secular legal perspective, the, uh, the overriding factor, the, the major uh, factor is the idea of rights, the right to free speech. Give me one moment. Thank you. To see you guys. I apologize. No worries. Um, we're renaming 400 to the Van Wick. <laughs> I hear you. All right. So. <laughs> for all those New Yorkers out there, we got it. All right, so I'm not a New Yorker, but I spent time there. Um, so let's circle back for a second. Um, so what we have here, so in, 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 in the United States, the foundation of the legal system is a rights-based system. It's all about rights. So the right to free speech is, you know, I mean, that's, that's, like, that's a big deal. In Jewish law, there's no notion of a right to free speech. When it comes to speech, you have an obligation to speak nicely. There's an obligation to speak kindly and not speak in a disparaging way. So remember what our, what our moms told us back in the day, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. Turns out that was some good Jewish law, legal advice. Jewish law would say, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything at all. And this will be the key distinction in understanding how these two systems diverge. In the US, the foundation, the, the starting point is rights and freedom, free speech, which makes sense, by the way, because our nation was founded on this idea of creating a space that was free of oppressive governments and other systems that, you know, national religions and, 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 and forced obligations, et cetera. This nation was founded on this notion of freedom and personal autonomy. Whereas, whereas in Judaism, that's not necessarily the focus. The focus is on obligations. Now, what's interesting about that is that the Jewish people were founded on a release from slavery, escape from slavery. I mean, think about it, right? The Jewish people began as, or were slaves in Egypt for a few hundred years and then got out. And you would think the, the whole motif of the Jewish people and Jewish law would be about freedom and non-oppression, but that's not what it's about. It's about, a, it's about obligations, responsibilities. There's two types of freedom. There's negative freedom and positive freedom. Negative freedom means freedom from. Positive freedom means it's freedom to. You can be free from, but even if you're free from, what are you about? In other words, if you define yourself in your freedom as I'm free from a former oppressor, but that's my entire definition of freedom that doesn't constitute who I am in the present, that's still tethering me to the past. Does that make sense what I'm saying? 
In other words, if my, if, my, if my identity today is that I used to be a slave in Egypt and today I'm no longer a slave. Pharaoh does, no longer has a grip over me. Am I free? Technically, I'm no longer a slave. But does that constitute real internal freedom? Not necessarily. Because what am I about? Where, where's my aim? Where's my goal? Where's my vision? Where am I headed? What, when I wake up in the morning, what is this about? What, what is the purpose of all of this? If I don't have that, then how free am I really? All I have is negative freedom, freedom from, but I don't have necessarily the definition of my positive freedom, which is the freedom to. When Moses goes to Pharaoh, we know he says famously, let my people go. That's not what he said. He said, God says, let my people go so that they may serve me on the mountain. That's a completely different statement. See, the way it's been, it's the way it's been presented is that Moses was a human rights advocate. That's not what he said. He didn't say to Pharaoh, you're a violator of human rights. The UN doesn't like you. Right? We're going to come after you. We're going to shame you. That wasn't at all the conversation. The conversation was simply this. These people have a higher calling. Remember like those Hebrew national hot dog ads? We answer to a higher authority. Remember that? He said, Moses says to Pharaoh, they can't, there's no, this people, they don't have time for your pyramid schemes, as it were. They don't have time for all this, we say in Yiddish, mishagas, this craziness. They have an appointment with the divine. They have a purpose in life. They don't have time to run after your whims and, 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 and fancies. They have, a, they have a meeting with God on a mountaintop somewhere. Right? Yalla, as we say in Hebrew, right? Yalla. We got to go. We got to bounce. See you later. Are you a bad guy for keeping us a slave? Are you violating our rights? Sure. Who knows? But the conversation wasn't about that. It was about the bigger picture. And so in Judaism, the conversation is always about the bigger picture. It's not about freedom from. It's freedom to. And freedom to means obligations, responsibilities. So I'm just explaining a bit of the, of, of the foundation of why these two systems diverge so, so drastically. So, but just to, just to get back to our point here, our conversation today is all about free speech. In the U.S., free speech is a major tenet. It's a major thing, free speech. In Judaism, you'll never encounter the notion of free speech. Free speech? Are you kidding me? Speak nicely. You have, enough, you have, you have the gift of speech. You have the power of speech. Use it wisely. What does that mean? Let's go, through, let's go through the obligations within Jewish law. Page, in this book, page 71. Again, this is lesson four of Talmudic Ethics, page 71, text 1a. This comes from the book of Leviticus. I will read this. Do not go around as a gossiper among your people. So the Bible says, the Torah says, don't gossip. What does that mean? Text 1b, here is how the code of Jewish law defines it. Who is a gossiper? One who collects information and then goes from person to person saying, this is what so-and-so said, this is what I heard about so-and-so. It's kind of like peddling information. It's like, I got some good information, what do you have for me? Let's see if we can make a deal, right? Even if, listen to this line, even if the statements are true and are not necessarily disparaging, they constitute a violation of a negative commandment, i.e. The, the commandment of not to go around gossiping, um, um, within the community. What is the point? Gossip. We're actually going to talk about, I should have introduced it this way, we will talk about three layers of obligation when it comes to speech. Obligation number one 
is out of three. One is no gossip. What is gossip? Gossip means it's true. It could be true. It could even be seemingly benign, not negative. It's still a problem. Now you're wondering, what's the problem? If I'm telling you that so-and-so just is going on a cruise, or I, you know who I met? Uh, so-and-so, you know what they told me? That The problem with that is that once you start talking and spinning information, you don't know what the other person knows or was told. Oh, they're going on a cruise. How come they didn't invite me? Or how come that? But, 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 but. And before you know it, you're causing fractures to happen between people because you were all schmoozy schmooze about somebody else's business. So even if it's true, even if it's seemingly not bad, seems kind of neutral, it still is problematic in Jewish law. What if when I learned that you had moved from Atlanta to Sandy Springs, I had said to a friend who knows who you are, did you know that Rabbi Salish moved up to Sandy Springs? That's a mitzvah. <laughs> <laughs> No, that's, yeah, you have to look in the back of the, the last page says, no, that would be absolutely a mitzvah. <laughs> um, good question. Where do you draw the line? That's your question. Where do you draw the line between, like, are, we, are we only supposed to talk about the weather at this point? Is that it? I think, I think it's about, I think it's about um, a perspective, right? If our perspective is gossiping, like, oh, you hear what happened? Even if we can say, oh, no, it's innocent, whatever, it still might lead to, but if it's informational, it's going to help someone else out. Oh, you know where you can catch a class, you know where you can, uh, you know, th then there would be utility, and then I don't think it's, it's problematic. It's really about sharing information that um, does not have a utility and just serves to, to be gossipy. What's fascinating is that one of, the area, one of the places that the Talmud derives this from is the way the biblical verses uh, share the conversations or how the conversations went between God and Moses. So in text two, we have something fascinating. This is from the Talmud. How do we know that if someone tells something to his friend, the friend may not repeat it unless he was told explicitly that he could say it? Because it says in Leviticus 1.1, and God spoke to Moses in a tent saying, i.e. telling him to repeat it to the people. In other words, when God spoke to Moses, the verse always says, God spoke to Moses saying, What's the saying? Saying means that God spoke to Moses and told him to say it to the people. Had God not told Moses to repeat it, Moses would not have been allowed to repeat it, which means that when someone shares information with you, the default, the default understanding should be that it is private information. You shouldn't have to tell someone, within, Jewish, within the Jewish legal understanding of this, you shouldn't have to tell someone it's a secret. The default on information is that it's secretive unless... It's opened up. It's kind of like, you know, what's the default setting, you know, on, let's say, Facebook when you share something? Is it public or is it private? Well, in general, the way media works is it's always private. Sorry, it's always public unless you limit it, unless you, unless you limit it. In Jewish law, in, in the Jewish understanding, in the Jewish imagination, it's the opposite. At least it should be the opposite. Whereas things begin private unless specifically and explicitly opened up. So if I tell you information, which is of a, a personal nature, it should be understood that it's private unless I tell you, oh, by the way, you can share it with someone else. You know, they joke about a secret. They say, you know, you know how, the definition of a secret? It's information that's shared one person at a time. <laughs> that's the joke, right? 
It's like, don't tell anybody, I won't. But I'll tell one person, <laughs> one person. But in Judaism, in Jewish law, it's not about secrets or explicit secrets. When I say that, it's not about uh, 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 defining something explicitly as a secret. Everything is meant to be personal and proprietary unless it's opened up, unless it's opened up. Um, that's category number one. Now, worse than that, when I say worse, more egregious than that, is when a person shares information about someone else that is disparaging. Even if it's true, disparaging, that we call Lashon Hara. Familiar with that term, Lashon Hara? Lashon Hara means speaking negatively about someone. So we just dealt with, until now, last five minutes or so, we talked about what, what's called in Hebrew, Rechilos. Rechilos means gossip. It's true, it's not necessarily negative, but it's still, we still should avoid it. But even worse than that, is when it's actually negative, it's disparaging. We call that Lashon Hara, it's negative talk. Let's, let's read about this, um, this definition of what this means in text 5a. We're skipping a few texts. Text 5a on page 74. Slander. What is slander? Slander is the telling of deprecating facts about a colleague, even if these facts are true. Slander does not refer, slander is Lashon Hara. Slander does not refer to someone who invents lies. Oh, that's category three. That's referred to as defamation of character. We have three categories. Gossip, slander, defamation of character. Defamation of character is the worst. Defamation of character means it's not even true and it's negative. Like I am, I'm, I'm inventing lies about someone and just spitting it out there to take this person's reputation down. That is the worst. But slander is where it's true but deprecating, that's still, and, and that, that is problematic as well. Rather, a slanderer, back inside, rather, a slanderer is someone who sits and relates on uncomplimentary things. A person who listens to slander is worse than the one who shares it. I guess, because if there was no one listening, there's no audience, then it wouldn't be spoken. So in other words, like, you're, you're almost facilitating. So yeah, the one who speaks it is not good, but the one who listens, oh, I mean, that's, that's like giving a platform. Text 5b, slander. Again, slander is, the def is, is the, well, it being used here to refer to lush and hara, negative talk. Slander includes those who make deprecatory remarks in the presence of a colleague or behind his back. Those who relate matters which, when passed from one person to another, will cause harm to a colleague's person or his property. So speaking ill of someone else, even if it's true, but speaking negatively about them, in a way that eventually you know, may hurt them, that is not okay in, uh, um, in Jewish law. So, and certainly not okay is inventing lies that are disparaging about someone to ruin their character. That for sure is no good. So we have three categories of what we would call perhaps forbidden speech within Jewish law. Let's go from three to one. Let's go from the most severe to the seemingly less severe. So the worst case is where you're inventing lies, defamation of character, making up negative stories to bring someone down. That's the worst. Beneath that is, it's, it's negative, but it's true. And beneath that is, it's true, and it doesn't even sound so negative, but it's gossipy. All three are prohibited in Jewish law. Does that make sense? So does Jewish law believe in free speech? <laughs> what would you say? Not really. Now, when you say free speech, it's... Now, can you speak about whatever you want? Sure. It's not like a lightning bolt is going to come down and hit you. But, but, it's, but it's almost like, again, I'm using that higher standard uh, um, um, reference. 
Jewish law holds us to a higher standard. And the higher standard is you have a gift of speech. And speech is a gift, the gift of communication. It's a very powerful gift. It's a, in, in accordance with Jewish mystical thought, it's what differentiates the human being from all the other forms of life. I know animals can communicate with each other, but you know, birds can tweet. People can also tweet. At least they could tweet as of a week and a half ago. I don't know if they can tweet anymore. Maybe they can exit. I don't know what that is, but whatever. But so, you know, they are composed. So, you know, birds can tweet and, and animals can signal and dolphins can. What do, what do dolphins do? They sonar, sonar? They send out signals and plants communicate with each other, right? Think of a joke, something with leave. Anyway, <laughs> leaving already? So anyway, so plants communicate with, with each other. It, you know, all forms of life have some sort of communication, but human beings have creative communication. And the communication that we have can literally uplift and bring down. And so Judaism holds our tongue to a higher standard. The Talmud says something fascinating. It says for every, um, for, for all of the senses, there's one layer of protection. Like for, for the eyes, to not see what we should, to not look at what we shouldn't be looking at, we can close our eyes. To not hear what we shouldn't be hearing, we can, I don't know, maybe close our ears. That actually is a little sore, but whatever. Conceptually, we can like close our ears. Our nose, we can pinch our nose. But the mouth, we have two layers of protection. The teeth and the lips. It's almost like we're created, our own biology is like, we should be able to stop talking, right? And so we should, we have a few different gates. It's like when you're buying diamonds, that you're going to a jewelry store, where you have to get buzzed in twice. It's like, we, there's, two, there's two gates to the tongue, to the mouth. And yet, sometimes it's so hard to control ourselves from speaking. But I think we all know in our, in our own experience how uplifting speech could be and how devastating speech could be. So, the, the, so Judaism, Jewish law, holds us to a very high standard when it comes to speech. Now, let's talk about shades of slander. Okay, this is called avak lashon hara. This is not, it's not overt um, slander, but it's, 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 it's touching on it. It's flirting with lashon hara, and therefore it's not good. Text number seven. Let's take a look at text number seven. Um, actually, let's, no, you know what, let's do text number six. This is, a, all right, this is a Talmudic story. Interesting. It's probably going to raise some eyebrows, but we'll do it. Another time, says the Talmud, Rabbi Shimon was sitting before Rebbe, and Rebbe was finishing a section of the book of Psalms. Rebbe said, how neat is this handwriting? Remember, this is before the printing press, right? This is 1,800 years ago, so this, there's only handwritten stuff. So the rabbi who's reading the book of Psalms says, wow, how neat is this handwriting? Rabbi Shimon replied to him, I did not write it. Yehuda Chayata wrote it. Rabbi retorted to Rabbi Shimon, desist from the slander. What kind of slander? The idea here is, once you're throwing in, oh, I didn't do it, he did it, even if it's neat handwriting, who knows what that conversation could stir. It's kind of like it was said in a way of like opening up like a story or opening up some other, some other stuff. Text number seven is, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I didn't write it. Once you throw someone else in there, as you'll see in text seven, sometimes a person is not going to overtly gossip, but is going to try to prompt someone else. Provoke, 
Yes, that's a, that's a better word. Provoke someone else into gossip. Um, you'll see this text seven. Let's read this. There are certain matters which are considered the shades of slander. For example, someone says, oh, don't talk about so-and-so. I do not want to say what happened. <laughs> right? I was like, oh, I don't even want to say what happened. No, no, I can't say anything. But you've already said all that needs to be known. I mean, maybe not all, but um, let's continue. Similarly, it is also considered the shades of slander when someone speaks favorably about a colleague in the presence of his enemies, for this will surely prompt them to speak disparagingly about him. So if you, if you talk positively about someone that that person that's listening doesn't like, so then they're probably going to say, oh yeah, but they're a bum. So great. So then you just, you just provoke them into saying that. Similarly, this category includes a person who relates slander in frivolity and jest as if he were not speaking with hatred. Oh, no, I was just kidding. I was just joking. Sure you were. Um, it also includes someone who slanders a colleague slyly, pretending to be innocently telling a story without knowing that it is slanderous. When he is reproved, he excuses himself by saying, I did not know that the story was slanderous or that so-and-so was involved. I had no idea. Wink, wink, right? Like, who, who, who could even know that this person was involved? The point is that in Jewish law, there's a lot of conversation and a lot of care that's invested in guiding us into healthy speech patterns. And there, there, are, there are a number of reasons for this. Number one, and this is not necessarily an order of priority or order of prominence, but these are just some ideas that, that, are, that are discussed around this topic of positive speech, of healthy speech. Number one, healthy speech is good for us. When we speak positively, it's a good reflection on what's going on inside. Somebody is speaking negatively about, about, about others, then it, it oftentimes reflects an unhappiness inside. If I'm unhappy, then I'm more likely to look at things negatively, to speak negatively, etc. So speech, the first point that I'll make is that speech is a good mirror of what's going on inside. So if we're ideally to be in a state of positivity, happiness, and joy, so then our speech would likely reflect that and be positive, happy, and joyous. Now that doesn't mean that we ignore the challenges around us and that we think that everything is good when, it's, when not everything is good, but, but our positivity emanates and will, will come out in the context of the words that we use. There's a fascinating story um, in the Talmud about this. Take a look at text number 11. Please turn to page 79, uh, I'm sorry. Please turn to page 80 in the booklets. I know we're skipping a bunch of texts, but you can always review them after the class. There's just too many to read. Uh, text number 11 comes from the Talmud. Listen to this. There were three Kohanim, three priests, who had each received a share of the show bread. I probably should explain what this means. This is back in the days when the Holy Temple stood in Jerusalem, the Jewish Temple. Um, not the one on Peachtree, that's the other, that's the, that's the modern, that's the temple of the land. But I'm at the holy temple in Jerusalem, right? The building of gold. So, so, um, there, so the way it worked is that there were certain items, food items in the temple that were shared by the priests that were serving in that shift. Every week had a different shift, had a different family of priests that would serve. Uh, you know, that would, would do whatever had to be done. And there were certain food items that they would split 
amongst the sacrifices and the offerings. So there were three Kohanim, just to start the story again, text 11, there were three priests who had each received a share of the showbread. That was like some of the bread that was on display in the temple. And then, then they, when they switched out the bread for new bread, the priests would eat of the bread that had been out. So one said to the other, a piece the size of a bean reached me. They were talking about how small they, they're, there was a bunch of people to split it with, so they got a little piece. I got the size of a bean. The other one said, a piece the size of an olive reached me. And one said, the third guy said, a piece the size of a lizard's tail reached me. They investigated the third one and found in him some disqualifying flaw. In other words, why would the guy talk about the showbread in the temple using a lizard's tail as a frame of reference? A lizard's tail? <laughs> Who talks about lizard's tails? Nothing wrong with lizards, by the way. Just saying. But a lizard's tail is like, I don't know, it's a non-kosher animal. No, lizards are not kosher. No, lizards? No, not kosher. Which is probably what? <laughs> Definitely not kosher. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so what's the point? The point here is that when they investigated, why is this guy talking about lizards' tails? They found out, okay, something was going on with him. So the point is, is that speaking positively is is good because it reflects that we are in a positive space. And if we're not, fake it till you make it, right? Speak positively and it will evoke within you positivity, which takes me to the next point, that our speech can shape character, can, can, shape, um, uh, can shape not only our character, but also can help shape those around us. Um, our speech has power and has energy to it. Um, when we speak, for example, let's talk about how speech affects ourselves. When you have an idea in your head that is not fully developed, but you share it with a colleague, what, what pretty much always happens is that the idea expands in your own mind as you speak about it, right? As you discuss it, it clarifies in your own head. And it, 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 it gets bigger and it gets clearer and yet there's a certain depth that's added to it. It just becomes that much more real to you. If you feel an emotion and you speak about the emotion, it usually gets bigger. I mean, think about, you know, if you're feeling love and you speak about it, you'll feel more love. If you're, if you're angry and you speak about it, you know what happens? You usually get more angry. That's why, by the way, the ancient books of Kabbalah, of Jewish mysticism, say that if you're in a state of anger, then the antidote to anger is silence. I know today, modern you know, psychology and therapy will say, you have to speak it out, speak it out. But I'll tell you what the ancient Jewish wisdom says, that if you're feeling angry, it's better to be quiet, not to hold in all your feelings forever and then have it blow up, but at least in the moment, be quiet, allow that moment to pass, and then you can deal with it in a calmer fashion because if you speak about it in that moment when you're upset, if you're in a moment of feeling resent or anger, disappointment, and you, you, you speak about it, it's usually going to blow up into a bigger thing than had you waited and allow that emotion to kind of calm down and then speak about it in a more rational way and then it, deal with the issue. So when we speak, of, the point is simple, I don't, not to get lost in all these details, the point is one point that I'm trying to make. What we say magnifies our ideas and our feelings. Speech has the power of magnification. So when we speak negatively, it just magnifies the power of negativity. Conversely, when we speak positively, it magnifies the power of positivity within ourselves. And that's a good thing. The second 
part. It's a good thing, not the first part. To speak positively is a good thing because it magnifies positivity, and that's a good thing. The third point I want to make, so point number one, it reflects reality. Point number two, it shapes and magnifies our character. Point number three is that our words have the ability to shape reality. This is, get, this is going to get a little bit metaphysical, but you know, you know you, you, everyone's familiar with the butterfly effect, right? Butter, the butterfly effect, a butterfly that flaps its wings, one part of the world creates you know, a tsunami somewhere else, right? There's no energy that's, no energy is ever lost or destroyed. So if we're putting something out there in, in the world, it's going to have an effect, which is why, interestingly, we don't have it here, the text is not here, but the Torah, the Bible, um, says that, we, that one is not permitted to curse a person who is deaf. And the commentaries wonder, well, if the person's deaf anyway, they can't hear it. So what's the problem? Uh, well, no, let's say they can't read it. Let's say, they, let's say they'll never, you know, you know the philosophical question, if a tree falls in a forest and no one's around to make it sound? If I could utter, not me, if one could utter a curse in the privacy of their own home and no one would ever hear it, would it be allowed? The answer is no. Because everything we say, whether or not someone hears it in the moment, everything that we say has an effect. And if it has an effect, whether, whether we see it or we don't see it, it has an effect here or elsewhere, you know, on a spiritual level, it has an effect. And therefore, we don't want to create negativity or negative energy within the, we shouldn't want to create negative energy within the world, within the universe. We should be wanting to create positive energy within the universe. There's a very powerful um, story, I think it's here. Give me a second, yeah. Page 84. Speech creates reality, a mystical view. Text 15 on page 84. A resident of Mejibuj, that is an old town, a small town back in, I don't know, uh, Russia, somewhere back there. A resident of Mejibuj had a quarrel with another. Once, while the ba- once in the Baal Shem Tov Shul, that's the synagogue of the Baal Shem Tov, the Hasidic master, he shouted that he would tear the other person to pieces like a fish. It's a weird expression, but that's the expression that he used. The Baal Shem Tov told his pupils to hold one another's hands and to stand near him with their eyes closed. Then he placed his holy hands on the shoulders of the two disciples next to him. Suddenly the disciples began shouting in great terror. They had seen that fellow actually dismembering his disputant. This incident shows clearly that every potential has an effect, either in physical form or on a spiritual plane that can be perceived only with higher and more refined senses. In other words, this guy said, I'll rip you apart like a fish. And meanwhile, on a, on a spiritual plane somewhere, on a metaphysical realm, that was actually happening. Not physically, but on a metaphysical realm, it was on a spiritual realm, it was happening, which means that our words create and have tremendous power. Even if we want to get less mystical, that was a more mystical way of understanding it. Even if we want to get less mystical, think about it in our own lives and experiences, the effect that others' words have had upon us. Think about maybe a teacher that you had you know, when you were a kid who said something positive and inspiring, who believed in you, who said, oh, you're good at math, or you're great at science, or you're a good writer, or you should be a lawyer, or you should be a doctor, whatever it is, right? and, and how that made you feel, and how maybe, maybe, maybe possible, that someone, what maybe not a teacher, maybe a parent, a mentor, a colleague, someone, said something that has empowered you and driven you in your life. Think about conversely how maybe somebody in your past told you that you couldn't do something, that you were no good at something, and how maybe to this very day you might be holding on to that 
self-belief that you can't do something, that I'm not good at X, Y, Z. I'm not an artist because, you know, maybe I got shamed. I don't know, shamed, whatever. Maybe because you know, I, felt, I, I was told that what I, what I drew or what I painted was not good, was not appealing. And maybe in my own head, that shut off that capacity. Words have tremendous power. One thing we know from the beginning of the Bible is that God, the, 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 um, the, the origin story of the universe in, in the biblical language is God creating through speech. God said, let there be light. There was light. God said, let there be sky. There was sky. God said, let there be vegetation. There was vegetation. What's the implication? That God created the universe in the biblical story through speech. Speech can create it can also destroy. Speech can lift up someone else and ourselves. Speech can take someone down. And so speech is so powerful. Life and death are in the hands of the tongue in the, in the Talmudic, to quote the Talmud. And so in Jewish law, speech is very powerful. Now, all of this, all of this, um, hopefully sheds a different perspective on speech. In the US and America, which is a rights-driven system, and there's valid reasons for that. The, the system is, it, what, the First Amendment grants us the right to freedom of speech. And that's a powerful right. But in Judaism, not that it's necessarily different, we, you, the U.S. gives us the right to say what, what, whatever we wish. And Judaism tells us, what should we wish to say? Positive things. That's what it means to be a mensch, to speak positively. However, for the next five minutes, I want to talk about scenarios in which we might have to violate the mandate to speak nicely. What happens if you have information that is necessary for someone else to know to protect them from harm? Case study three, page 86. We'll do three, case, three additional case studies very quickly. These are cases that came that were brought to rabbis to weigh in on from the perspective of Jewish law, page 86. Dear Rabbi Kusha Levitz, I am an accountant of a big corporation and in the process of doing the company's books, I realized that a secretary was embezzling funds. I had warned the secretary on several occasions but to no avail. I have the option to make his behavior public by announcing my findings at the next board meeting in front of all the corporate officers. Of course, the secretary would be present as well. I see this as the only alternative to stop the secretary from future embezzlements. Do I have an obligation to let the company know that one of their employees is a thief? So on the one hand, we're not supposed to speak negatively, even if it's true about someone else. On the other hand, the guy's stealing. The guy's a ganif. He's stealing from the company. Hold that thought, case study four. Dear Rabbi Waldenberg, next case. I am an optometrist who became aware that one of my patients recently developed a visual impairment. He asked me not to tell anyone and assured me that he will not drive a car anymore. However, I have a suspicion that he is not truthful and does plan to drive. Do I have an obligation to tell the Department of Motor Vehicles that the patient is not safe on the road and should be denied a license to drive? Should a doctor violate? Well, I mean, there you have a profession. That's a complicated, that's, you know, I, I don't know what goes on in Israel. This is a case that happened in Israel. But I don't know that you can violate uh, here a person's you know, patient-doctor confidentiality. There are instances where you have to, right? Homicidal or suicidal uh, um, uh, thoughts and, and that sort of thing. They have to be divulged, I think, to law enforcement. 
But in this case, I don't know. It's a good question, yeah. Well, I'm a so I was a social worker, and if somebody said something to me that he or she was going to do something to harm somebody else. Right, you had to report it. Or I would be, I would be arrested. Right, but he, in this case, he's telling his doctor, I'm not gonna drive anymore. Yeah, but you know. But the doctor's like, oh, I don't know. I, a question. A, all right, let's let's read case study five. This is a little bit of a shocking okay, case. He's in an accident. Right, right. Case study five is is a is a strange case to me, but it's a case that we have to think about as well. Rabbi, dear Rabbi Breish, I am a physician of a boy who was engaged to be married. Over the course of the of a routine checkup, I discovered that he had a tumor that was likely to kill him within a year or two. My colleagues and I did not tell the patient about it, as we fear that the shock may worsen his condition. Am I ethically obligated to tell the family of the bride, or am I bound to preserve the confidence of the patient? Wow, that's not telling the patient, but wanting to tell the fiance? Wow, that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a little bit of a bizarre case to me. I don't think that would fly in, in, in the US at all. But here's, the, here's the, the core of it is, when do we say that you can't say anything at all about anything negative at all? Or when do we say you're allowed to, to protect another party, to protect against theft, to protect against the embezzlement, to protect um, you know, the, the safety of the streets, to protect the interests of this person, of this woman who doesn't know that the husband she's about to marry, the person she's about to marry, is not going to be here in, in a year or two. So, and that, that would be, case study five is, I don't know, that's, to me that's, a, that's an interesting case. Um, that the, first and foremost, that the doctors did not tell the patient. I just can't imagine any scenario where that's a thing. This is what I'm saying. Yeah. You're driving home from vacation, and you look just past the bridge that's washed out. Okay. And you see cars coming. Right. Do you have an obligation? Uh, don't you have a moral obligation? Yes. stop and say, Careful yes, by the way, that reminds me of a joke. So this guy is speeding, listen to this, well, this guy's speeding down the road in his new sports car. He's got a red little roadster with the top down and he's just speeding. Two guys are on the side of the road holding a sign that says, the end is near. He rolls down his window, slows down. You whack jobs, the end is near. You and your doomsday scenarios, you know, take this. And he guns it. And just in, and, and within a few seconds, you hear this screech and this crash. And the two guys look at each other and said, maybe we should have changed the sign to bridge out. <laughs> also turned it on and said, right. the one thing mass shooters have in common is that we knew about them. Not so much that they were going to shoot, but they were reporting about something was Something was going on. However, our dear friends in the used to be useful ACLU and everything has turned law and said, that you're scared to whistleblow now, or do that. The police were scared to hold the kid in, in custody, like in Parkland or whatever. Right. Because the, law, the, the laws have changed against right. turning in. And yet they say every time there's a mass shooting, if you know someone is looking dangerous, report it. You got to report it. Text 18. So along those lines, perfect segue. Text 18, here's what Maimonides says. And we're going to conclude with this. Anyone who can save his friend from danger and does not save him is in violation of the verse, do not stand idly by the blood of your fellow. Therefore, if someone sees a friend drowning in a sea or being attacked by robbers and he is able to save him or he heard that people were plotting to cause him harm or planning to entrap him and he does not reveal it to his friend, 
he's in violation of that verse. In other words, if you have that information about someone who is a danger to others, you have to say something. And in Jewish law, we talked about an obligation to speak nicely. But there's another obligation. We have now competing obligations. You have the obligation to speak nicely, but you also have the obligation to protect others from harm. When these two, when these two collide, which one takes precedence? Here we have the answer. The answer is always safety, protection, and not only life, it's not only because it's life and death, even when it comes to financial, he talks about robbery and theft, even financial harm will supersede the prohibition against speaking negatively, which means to just be very clear as we conclude today's session, to be very clear, because it's all about speech, I want to speak very clearly, to, to be very clear in Jewish law, all things being equal, speak nicely, don't speak neg negatively. However, if someone stands to, to be, potentially to be harmed, and you have that information, whether it's theft, whether it's something more serious, life and death, obviously, you have to say something. You absolutely have to say something. You have to speak. Now, going back to our original case studies, I'm gonna to get to you in just one second. Going back to our original case studies, did the newspaper, if we were looking at this, not from the perspective of Israeli law, but Jewish law, Talmudic law, would Yidiot Achronot, the newspaper, would it have the Jewish permission to publish a story about a murder that happened 32 years ago if no one was presently in danger? It seems like the answer would be no, it's not newsworthy right now. If someone's a danger now, 100% yes, it's a mitzvah to. You have to, you're obligated to. But if not, what about inserting the line in, in, the, in the TV series Kastner that throws someone innocently under the bus? Absolutely not. Cookie. Uh, the first one really disturbs me. Which one? The embezzlement? The first story about the, the, yeah, the secretary. The yeah, 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 yeah. So this somehow reminds me of like, what if, I, what if one of the teachers in my school thought I did something wrong and she announces it at a faculty meeting? Right. Okay, so the, the, the point is, if, if, if they're saying something in front of the whole board, and they maybe don't have the, um, they're being the judge and the jury right there. That's Good. terrible. Good. Good. I would say, excellent point. I would say that if this person was, and they did, consult, consulting a rabbi, right? Dear Rabbi Kushalevit. So this clearly a rabbi was weighing on this. The rabbi would, I can't speak for this rabbi, but the rabbi, a rabbi, a competent rabbi would likely say, if, if asked, that you need to, number one, go over to the, to the individual and find out what their story is. Maybe they have a different story. This person did go to that individual and still had a problem. Then go to another party, maybe, and bring it up and have it there. But to go, to, to go um, uh, uh, do it at a board meeting in front of the whole board would, would not necessarily be necessary. In other words, in Jewish law, you have to take the steps to prevent the harm. But... We, it's not about making a sensationalistic display of it. So if this would be more sensationalistic and less about the expediency of, 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 of mitigating the, the danger, then that would be outside the permissibility within Jewish law. I, in other words, what I'm trying to say is I agree with you, but, it's, but, but I don't know all the details of the case. I don't know the nature of that board, who was comprised of, etc. But your point is well taken, and Jewish law would agree in theory with that idea of not putting, even if it's necessary, it doesn't mean everyone needs, it doesn't mean it has to be like blown up. 
the necessary party would need to know about it and, and it handled it correctly, but that still doesn't, once you have an allowance for safety protection of another to share the information, it doesn't mean that all the other considerations are completely withdrawn. In other words, you don't have to tarnish their name, their family, their children. It doesn't have to be tarnished altogether. You don't have to blow up someone to mitigate the danger. Now, sometimes that's necessary to stop the danger, in which case, blow them up. Again, but it's you have to use a little seichel to figure out what's going on and probably consult with some people that are, that are knowledgeable in these areas to figure out what to do. But the general ideas, the main points, are that number one, we seek to use our words kindly. Number two, we have to protect ourselves and others in dangerous, uh, uh, from, from threats and danger. So we have to be able to balance that, yeah. We have a situation which has affected everyone in this room, everybody we know, the case that is being litigated in federal court right now on the United States government censoring true speech that was warning doctors, scientists that were busy warning uh, the general public about the dangers of injections. Danger of what? The danger of injections. Vaccine. Known as vaccination, specifically for COVID nineteen. So, all right, I, and, and, that, and it's controversial. But I want to bring this up. So, you have a whole group that's bringing out these dangers. You have it's happened during this administration. It's not quite. Yeah. So here's here's a, no. I'm with you. I, I, I think. So here, here's what I think. Here's what I think. I, I think in the interest of the ideas and not not touching things that will become, you know, hot bun topics here. You know, the hot bun topics that I'm going to speak about are cases that happened in 1988 with somebody suing Gideon That is the, That is what I'm comfortable dealing with. Stuff that's going on right now with, with issues. No, but, but, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. I just just in the, in the context of of making sure that this remains a comfortable space for everybody. One second, well, hold on one second. Just in the context of making sure there's a comfortable space for everybody. So I think that the, that the question of free speech and who determines free speech, I think, I think we could speak generally. I don't want to speak any more specific on that in the context of the class. You and I could speak afterwards and we could have a, a private schmooze. But in the context of this class, I would say that the topic is very complicated. Because, on the one hand, our country does champion free speech. On the other hand, there are instances where that does not seem to be uh, championed, whether it's in one, uh, in one space or another space. And I think it is a very complex thing. When we talk about, when, when we open up, I, I talked about the, the protests going, you know, that happened, not protests, the, uh, uh, you know, in front of Chabad of Cobb with the swastikas. So when we talk about free speech, the question is, who then determines what speech is not okay speech and who's holding, you know, who, who holds those keys. And that, I think, is an ongoing conversation. It, it's, it's fueled by, you know, uh, um, I say fueled by, it, it's the, predic the, the, the foundation of that is that this, you know, that, that there is this openness of free speech and then at the same time, the door is closed. Who's closing the door? I don't have the answer to that. I, I don't, I don't. 
but but I, I but I see because I'm I'm reading the crowd. I see that that this is gonna it's creating. It's already creating. But once I but no, I, we I, we have to. We, you and I can speak afterwards. I don't want this to be a platform. I don't want this class, this space, to be a space where we're making anybody feel uncomfortable. I, I feel comfortable speaking about Jewish. I, I get it, and I get it, and this is not necessarily the context for that conversation. I am. <laughs> no, I'm. I'm <laughs> my. <laughs> I, 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 I can't, I can't, this is a, this is a, this is a, this is, a, this is not a, this is not a, uh, yeah. All right, on the, on the uh, piggyback, all right, let's say some uh, neighbors um, find out that they have a pedophile in their neighborhood, and then they go and tell the other neighbors, is that? It would seem that based on, on this, on text 18, it would seem that that would be within the, um, it's interesting. The question really would be, how far does that have to go? In other words, if we determine that the person is a threat, okay? And so, in other words, the, the starting point within Jewish law is, is not freedom of speech. The, the, the starting point in Jewish law is positive speech, right? The freedom of speech is the U.S. starting point. That's not what we're talking about today. Today, we're speaking from a Jewish perspective. The Jewish starting point is always speak positively, not disparagingly. Then the question is, well, what happens if someone is a threat, is a danger? But now your question is, what if somebody was a threat? How do we know if they're still a threat? I don't have the answer to that question. So I can't weigh in on that. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not an expert on that. But that would have to be based on the best data that we have um, and then make an assessment. Is this person still a risk? Do we have to then sp uh, share the information? And how far does that need to go? We, you know, there's also the, the, the challenge today is also people like we had the case of the person who was a convicted murderer in case study two. You know, when do we give people a second chance without having their past, you know, be out there and held against them? So I, that's, that's, that question is outside of my expertise. I'm just sharing with you through general framework. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. A very practical question, please. I know you've talked about Jewish law. Yes. But these two first cases... Israeli law. Israeli law. How were they set? Yeah. You know, that's a good question. And I will be honest with you that I don't remember what the, what the courts ruled. I know. You would think, at the very least, I could be prepared with what the courts actually said. Um, I, it, would it would probably be a quick Google search to see what the courts ruled in the case of Mati Lerner and the TV show Kastner. And the case of Yudir Akhrner, if I had to guess, if I had to guess, probably in both cases, the courts probably allowed it. I would, I would, I would, if I, if I had a bet, hold on, hold on, hold on, one second, time out. I'm saying, I don't know, I don't know, but I would, okay, I, good, accepted. Maskim, I agree. Mati Lerner, my understanding is, he, if he's creating a, a show that is more art, in documentary, and he wants to throw in a line, I would find it very hard-pressed for a secular court to disallow it. Again, from a Jewish perspective, absolutely not. Absolutely. What's the, what's the permission to allow it? There's no free speech. Judaism doesn't have free speech. It's you have an obligation to healthy speech. So in, in a Jewish understanding, in a, in, a, uh, in a secular understanding, I don't think it's a problem. It's art. Case study two, here you have a newspaper reporting on news that happened 30 years ago, 
I, I don't see that that would be a problem. I, I, from, from a secular perspective, I don't see that. Oh, do I have a problem with it? I, I might have a problem with it, but again, you're asking what they ruled. I would, I would bet that in case study one and two, the courts ruled that it's not a problem, that multi-learner can, can put a show out, and that Yediot Akrono is not, is not liable for any damages. I, but that's without, without knowing for sure. We have to look that up. Yeah, yeah. The Israeli courts, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, again, that's part of the, it's another conversation that we're not going to talk about is what's going on right now with the Israeli secular, with Supreme Court. It's a very complicated situation. Now, one, uh, two final points. Number one, next week, let me see the topic for next week. Next week, we are going to be speaking about, oh, how do we balance honesty and fairness? Is it ever okay to compromise the truth? That's, to, that's next week's topic, truth and honesty. So that is next week, same bad time, same bad channel. Um, a few other announcements. Um, I put on the tables this flyer. We are bringing a Holocaust survivor from Arizona. She's 95 years old. Her name is Esther Bash. She is a survivor of Auschwitz. She had two encounters with uh, Mengele, the angel of death himself, and survived incredible miracles that happened uh, with, her, uh, with her survival. She'll be sharing her story right here, not right here, but in this building, um, in two weeks. Two weeks from tonight, everyone is invited and encouraged to join. Please spread the word, and uh, you can take a flyer with you if you'd like. Very, very special event. Um, otherwise, I think that is... Oh yeah, Shabbat in South Africa. Shabbat out of Africa. For those that are interested, on the back of your booklets, conveniently printed a flyer for an upcoming uh, Shabbat uh, weekend experience. We have a, a chaz and a cantor coming in from, he used to be in Johannesburg, now he's in London. He happens to also be my brother-in-law. So he's <laughs> former chaz of Sydney Shul, one of the big synagogues, married to my wife's sister. Shouting and his followers were shouting, kill all white people. Aye. Yeah, that is, uh, that is not, not good. Oh, so it starts, so um, the Friday night, I believe, starts around 7 o'clock with services, and then it goes into a uh, Shabbat dinner for those that wish to join with uh, South African themed cuisine and musical entertainment uh, during dinner. And then Shabbat day, Shabbat morning, we have three scholars and residents born and bred in, Afri in South Africa who are here. Um, that will be speaking and teaching, and it's going to be a lot of fun all around. Good, good energy, good spirits. So everyone's invited. All right. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure. All right. Thank you. Thank you. To be continued. Sorry. The truth versus whatever.